And she would look at the page. She would then look at the researchers and she would pretend to grab a blueberry out of the photograph. You're listening to the Knowledge Archives podcast. We're a group of students on a mission to learn from as many disciplines of knowledge as possible. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. David Peña Guzman. He's an associate professor of humanities at San Francisco State University in the U.S. His specialty is exploring the latest science on animal consciousness to answer questions about our moral treatment of animals. Today, we talk about some recent scientific discoveries on this topic and the philosophical implications they bring. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I am very excited to dive a little bit deeper into some of the previous work you've talked about. And this is one of those areas where it really reshapes the way you see the world. So I'm very excited for this podcast in particular. Before we get diving into some of the more complicated questions, I'd love to just ask you, first of all, to introduce yourself and a bit of your background as to how you got into this area. Uh, certainly. Well, my name is David Peña Guzman, and uh, right now I am an associate professor in humanities at San Francisco State University in the Bay Area. And I've been working at this university for the past six years, uh, where I teach a combination of classes related to animal studies, the history of science, the philosophy of mind, and uh, my background is in philosophy. And uh, when I was a graduate student in philosophy, getting my PhD at Emory University in Atlanta, I began to study animals. It was a somewhat accidental uh, discovery, but I found myself in a graduate seminar about the lives of other species. And I came to the realization that all the basic problems of philosophy, what is consciousness, what is morality, what is rationality, what is cognition, all these questions get turned upside down the moment you introduce other species. And so that problem became very fascinating for me because for a long time, philosophers have had a lot to say about many of these categories and others but always implicitly thinking about them from a human-centered perspective. And so what happens to those, to those notions, to those ideas, and to our interpretation of them when we remove ourselves from the center of, of that terrain and start thinking about it in a more trans-species or cross-species way? And so that was my entry point into the field of, of animal studies. I came to it as a philosopher who had an interest in science, reason, experience, existence, and then realizing that my way of thinking would have to change once I paid attention to the more than human world. And for anyone that hasn't come across your work before, I highly recommend this podcast that you did with the Royal Institution that I'll link in the description where you talked about a very particular part of animals' life that you studied, 
which is what happens to animals when they are sleeping and dreaming. It didn't seem immediately obvious why this part of animals' life was interesting to study, but then you explained how we can observe what is going on in animals' brains when they are sleeping and dreaming, and how this can tell us things about their general intellectual capabilities. Things like, do they have an imagination? Do they have the ability to reflect on things that have happened in the past? You broke it down into very specific case studies. Things like, when we notice some chimpanzees that were sleeping and dreaming, and we notice them making American Sign Language gestures. Or, if we're observing cuttlefish or octopuses, that are sleeping and their skin is changing colors. These types of things show that animals are not just brain dead when they're sleeping and dreaming, they have some complex intellectual activity going on inside their brains. And when we dug deeper into this by directly recording electrical activity in animals like rats or birds, we noticed that let's say birds, might have very similar electrical activity when sleeping compared to when they were awake and practicing singing songs. That might tell us that they have this ability to remember that past experience and imagine themselves doing it even while they are sleeping. Or with rats, let's say they were navigating mazes in the past and they have very similar electrical activity when they're sleeping. Well, that might show us that they're able to remember what happened to them before and then have a sort of mind's eye, as we might call it, where they can imagine themselves being in this maze environment even when they are sleeping. All of this is complicated and I definitely recommend the podcast and book. But could we talk about the most credible case studies that you find for showing that animals do have this capacity to imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a lot in the field of animal cognitive and behavioral science that sheds light on this question of animal imagination. And uh, one thing to say at the very beginning is that imagination is a really complicated and um, interesting mental faculty that doesn't just get expressed in any one way. Uh, There are many activities that we do that require the intervention of imagination in ways that are not always obvious. And so we need to start not only asking questions about whether or not animals have the same kind of imagination that we do or whether or not they imagine the same things that we do, but we need to start asking questions about where we go to look for imagination in other species. Because of course, other animals are not going to be painting landscapes with uh, oil on canvas. They're not going to be expressing that capacity in the same way as humans. And so let's think about some places where we find imaginative acts in in the animal world. One of them is in the realm of pretense behaviors that require animals to pretend as if something is happening when in fact that's not really the case. 
And there have been a lot of observational field studies now that indicate that many animals engage in a form of pretending that something is happening as a way of either uh, escaping from a predator or advancing in a social hierarchy. And those behaviors are indicative of imagination precisely because when an animal pretends, it requires the animal to conjure up an alternative reality and to enact it through their behavior, very much like an actor makes a character real on the theater stage, right? We go to the theater, we see somebody performing certain behaviors uh, and acting as if they are a certain character when we know that's not truly what's going on. And one really fascinating example of this is some defense strategies that animals like birds perform. Imagine that you are a bird and you have a nest with some eggs and your babies are recently hatched. So you're protective of your offspring. And you notice that a snake that is a predator is getting very, very dangerously close to your nest. You, as the mother bird, decide that you're going to fly away from the nest. Now, that's already a kind of counterintuitive behavior. Why would the mother bird leave the nest unattended precisely at the moment that danger is knocking at the door? But the mother bird will fly away will get down on the ground, not too far away from the snake, but in the opposite direction as the nest, and will pretend to have a broken wing. Uh, They will fold the wing and they will flap it in a chaotic, irrational, incoherent way, and they will stumble uh, as a way of drawing the attention of the snake over to them and away from the nest. Now, the snake looks at this and thinks to itself, Well, this is an easy kill. It's a bigger bird. I'm just going to go in the opposite direction. So the the snake changes direction away from the nest. The mother bird is still pretending to be injured, um, an easy kill. And right at the last second when the snake is close to the mother bird, the mother bird will simply fly away and return to the nest. And that seems like a really simple behavior on the part of the mother bird but it is really hard to interpret without appeal to some form of imaginative capacity that allows the mother bird to again project an illusion that is not real as a way of convincing the snake or luring the snake away. And uh, there are a lot of other examples of this kind of pretense behavior. And I talk about some of them in my book, which you mentioned. Uh, when animals dream, the hidden world of animal consciousness. And uh, most of the examples that I give are not of birds, but of mammals, and in particular, non-human primates. I talk about Panbanisha, which is a chimpanzee who really enjoyed looking at magazines. It was just uh, an enjoyable pastime for Panbanisha to look at magazines, flip through the pages, and then just go on with her day. and. Uh, at one point, the researchers who were the caretakers for Panbanisha realized that Panbanisha liked to play with them. And what she would do is she would open a magazine that had a photograph of blueberries in it. And she would look at the page. She would then look at the researchers. She would look at the page again. 
and she would pretend to grab a blueberry out of the photograph. She would bring her hand as if she were holding a blueberry up to her mouth while looking directly at the researchers. And then she would crack up because she thought she had fooled them into thinking that she was eating blueberries. You know, this is not a case of a defense strategy. It is purely playful pretense, but again, something that is propped up by an immense amount of imaginative horsepower. Uh, there is a section in the book where I, I kind of dissect this particular example in detail, talking about all the steps that are required physically and cognitively for Panbanisha to bring this performance into the world. And, and the fact that she has to really imagine a real blueberry in her hands, since she is making the right configuration of hand and finger movements that would suggest there should be something there. But of course, she knows that there isn't. Now, both of these examples that I just gave are, of course, about behaviors, right? The, the mother bird flying, pretending to have a broken wing, Pan Venetia uh, grabbing fake blueberries and thinking that it's a really funny practical joke to play on the human researchers. But as you mentioned, there is also evidence that comes from the study of, of neural patterns. In the book, I, I talk about this in connection to rats, because we now know that rats can, the technical term for this is pre-play. They can pre-play certain scenarios in their mind's eye when they are allowed to take a rest from a particular maze. So you introduce a rat to a maze, they get acclimated, they cognitively map the environment, they sort of know what's what and what's where. And over time, they start synthesizing everything that they know about the space. They start mapping it in their minds and drawing connections. And there are instances where researchers have found that that the rats not only map the environment that objectively exists, but if they have a reason to do it, sometimes they will even imagine new pathways or shortcuts that they wish existed in this space. Um, and this is something that we can track, again, through neural activity. And this is a really fascinating example of what philosophers often call offline processing a kind of mental activity that is happening inside the mind, but that is not prompted or triggered by something objectively existing in the real world. It's interesting to me how a lot of your training as a philosopher, it gets reflected in how you pick apart these case studies in detail. Are there any large uncertainties or assumptions that you're thinking, hmm, I'm not so sure that the evidence would still you know, lead to this conclusion if this weren't true? Well, there are definitely different kinds of limitations that apply to different kinds of research. Um, no research protocol is perfect and free <laughs> of limits. If you do highly replicable controlled laboratory studies, the limit there is that if they're really that highly controlled, chances are they're going to be highly unnatural as well and not reflective of the natural environment in which normally animals would flourish and thrive and act. 
And so the more control you have, one limit is that the less likely it is to give you findings that you can extrapolate to the natural world. On the other hand, the closer you get to the natural world with all its complications, with all its variables that are uncontrollable, then the further away you're going to get from easily replicable results because nature cannot be replicated. And so there's always this question of how do we settle that tension in a reasonable way? So the studies that I gave you just earlier about Panvenisha or the birds, but there are many other cases of, of animal behavior. All of these are observational studies. And so, of course, one of, one of the limits would just be that it is an individual incident that could be open to multiple interpretations. Although I, I do believe that once you see how prevalent and how recurrent these pretense behaviors are, they do shed light on the mental functions that are available to members of a particular species, even if those cognitive functions don't get expressed always or in the same way, or even by every single member of the species. So there are questions that remain, for example, um, to what extent is Panvenisha's playful pretense with the researchers, you know, an, an aberration that is particular to her rather than to chimpanzees in general? To what extent does she interact in that way with human researchers because she is in captivity? Would a chimpanzee in the wild even have any motivation to play with a human third party? We don't really know. And so there are questions that remain. But for me, what is not a question, at least not at this moment, is whether or not other animals do have a cognitive capacity that we can reasonably call imaginative. It's not to say that all animals have that, um, but I do feel confident in saying that a lot of animals have that. And I would include not just non-human primates, which of course are very close to us, evolutionarily and genetically, I would include practically all mammals, birds as well. And, you know, depending on how the category of imagination is defined, I might also include some cephalopods in there as well. So if I understood that correctly, you said that two of the largest assumptions or questions that we still have when we're using these observational studies is how much is the phenomenon particular to the individual that we're studying and how much would it come about in wild settings as well as you know the ones that we have animals in captivity in correct and i think that's a question that we those are two questions that we always need to keep in mind when we think about animals uh, the distribution of a certain capacity and uh, the second is the extent to which that capacity is expressed in a particular setting by features or, or properties of the setting itself, of the situation. And the reason that I emphasize the first one is because we already know that even in the case of Homo sapiens, there's a lot of variation in cognitive, behavioral, social, emotional expressivity, right? Not, not all humans are emotional in the same way or equally emotional, or equally imaginative. Some people have extremely good 
photographic memories. Others like me read an article and we forget about it the next day unless, unless we take very close notes. And so that diversity, that intraspecies variation is something that we should expect in other species as well. And so it could be that Panvenetia is perhaps just a really gifted chimpanzee. It could be that she's not. We just might need more information. But for that, we would need to study more animals, again, hopefully in natural settings using non-invasive, non-harmful methods. On that note of, well, we don't want to harm animals, as we continue to realize, you know, the intellectual complexity of these animals, it seems like increasingly the way that we treat them, you know, that might need to be adjusted to account for the realizations we're having. Could you talk about how we might decide what are the standards that we should treat an animal with based on the evidence that we have thus far about its cognitive complexity? Yeah, the animal sciences are always in a really bizarre double bind because the more they succeed at showing that animals have complex behaviors, complex mental states, the more they undermine their own justification for continuing to perform the research that got us there in the first place. And that might seem contradictory or perhaps self-undermining, but I don't think that it is. I think it's actually a good double bind to be in and one that we should embrace. The more we learn about animals, the more we ought to question what we do to them. And if it follows from moral principles that we ought not continue doing those things to them, then we should stop. And so the question here is, how do we decide when we have arrived at that moment of saying, does this particular animal now deserve moral protection, especially moral protection from ourselves? from humans who carry out harm against this creature. And here it really depends on your views about what moral theorists call moral standing. It depends on what you think makes an animal matter morally from an ethical point of view. And there are different philosophical schools out there that give different answers to that question. For example, there are some people who think that morality is intricately tied up with rationality. And so in order to be worthy of moral dignity, an animal needs to be a rational agent. It needs to be able to have rational thoughts and engage in means and rationality. You know, if I want to do this, then I must do these other things first, because that rationally is a precondition for the other thing. Now, the problem with this view on my, on my view is that it just seems to set the bar very, very high for moral consideration. It excludes too many creatures, including too many humans and too many non-humans. So this is not a view that I share, but it is one view out there. Now, other people uh, believe that in order to have moral standing, what you need is not necessarily rationality but rather social bonds, social connections, social relations. 
if you're the kind of organism that can maintain, cultivate, and contribute to a social bond, then you deserve to be protected. And those bonds that you create need also be respected. And this is a much more appealing way of thinking about morality. But it also might give us some problems when we think about largely a social or solitary animals. Suddenly they seem like they don't fit into that framework as well. Now, one of the broadest categories that other people point to to avoid these exclusions of rationality or sociality is sentience, which typically is interpreted to mean the capacity to feel pain and pleasure. If we define sentience in that way, then yes, a lot of animals are going to be included, but perhaps, again, there might be some exclusions. And people here disagree about, um, for example, bone uh, boneless fish. There's some research out there that suggests that boneless fish don't really feel pain. So think about sharks uh, that don't have hard bones in their bodies. Think also about insects. Uh, the scientific research on it, insect pain, sentience, is changing, but there is no scientific consensus yet on the question of pain. Think also about other animals like snails or a jellyfish or a sponge that lives in the bottom of the ocean, or think about a bacterium. You know, does a bacterium feel pain? You know, we might say probably not, not in the same way in which we think about pain as a mental experience of discomfort. And so there are all these ways of thinking about how to cut up the pie of nature to decide which animals need to be respected versus those animals that are not entitled to moral protection. I myself embrace a version of the sentience hypothesis, but rather than just focusing on pain and pleasure, I include a number of other things in my understanding of sentience to make it even broader. So for me, sentience definitely would include pain and pleasure, but it would also include basic forms of perception and, and emotional affective processing, even of a very simple primal sort. And so it opens it even more. But the point that I'm, I'm getting to here is that even though there is disagreement among experts about this question of moral status in animals, whatever position one takes has to be rooted in sound ethical reasoning. You have to give moral reasons for your exclusions rather than just arbitrarily saying that this particular animal doesn't deserve moral protections just because it is practically or economically convenient for us to deny those protections, right? The, the arguments have to be ethical and moral in nature because it is an ethical and moral topic. I feel like um, I have so many other questions that I could ask you for an hour about what about even in humans? You know, how do we decide which thing in humans is special that deserves moral protection? Or if we're going to say that you need to have ethical or moral arguments, does that mean that the everyday person who doesn't know about moral schools of philosophy is, you know, they're, they're not capable of making such decisions or they don't have the right to do so or dot, 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 dot? 
I, I feel like I can't go there with you because it's going to take <laughs> a lot of time. So instead, to wrap up, what are some questions that you find very pressing that, that you still really want to see more future research on? Well, in connection to what we said earlier about the double bind that scientific researchers find themselves in, I feel like as an animal philosopher and also an animal ethicist, I myself am in a double bind of my own in connection to research, because although I am enthralled by by research on animal behavior and animal cognition, and I devote my life to reading it and interpreting and writing about it, my commitments to animal ethics also complicates my relationship to it, because a lot of this research, even research that I use uh, and that I cite, as you mentioned earlier, is harmful and is invasive. Um, and, and so even though we have learned a lot from this research, it doesn't necessarily mean that I want to advocate for further research, especially when that research involves bringing physical harm or, or especially death to, to animals. Now, there are some things that I hope will start shaping the field of, of animal science, or rather reshaping the field of animal science and taking it in new directions. So for starters, I, I do think scientists who are interested, especially in the social, cognitive, and emotional lives of other species, they need to take a much more holistic approach to, to their study. And that means looking at how animals as, as a whole organism, how an animal as, as an entire being interacts with a complex and dynamic environment. And that means that you as a researcher either have to recreate that complex or complex and dynamic environment in the laboratory, which is extremely difficult, or you have to start shifting away from laboratory settings to field studies where you look at animals doing what they do in their natural setting. A related issue that I, I want to mention here is that I want to see increased attention to the role of animal agency and the importance of giving animals, including and maybe even especially those in captivity, a sense of control over their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And the reason for this is because we now have reason to believe that animals that have that sense of agency that can choose to do things or not to do things are in much better shape emotionally, cognitively, even physiologically than animals that are fully dominated by the researchers that control every minute aspect of their lives. Animals that live in impoverished settings they have increased levels of stress that impact the way in which they interact, not just with the world, but with the researchers themselves. And so the rationale here is partly ethical, because I think it is morally better to give animals a sense of agency, but it is also scientific. I think we're much more likely to get interesting results when we interact with animals that are interested in the questions that we pose to them rather than animals that are, you know, simply forced into participation, especially by negative reinforcement. 
Now, I also think there could be some interesting changes in the composition of research teams. Um, scientists, of course, are used to working with scientists, but but I think there is a future for research where scientists are collaborating with people with a different background, uh, and that can include experts in animal welfare, as well as people not unlike me who study the animal mind, who study animal behavior from a humanistic perspective. And so I would like to see those transdisciplinary collaborations with people from, from very different fields. In terms of thematics, so what we ought to be studying or what we sh- what I wish there was more, more research on, I think there are interesting openings right now in science in the areas of animal communication. Some interesting things are happening. There is interesting stuff happening on the question of animal sociality. How do animals interact with one another? How they form bonds, how they form alliances, how they form even enemy relationships or frenemy dynamics even um, based on personality differences. There is, I hope, more that we will learn about emotion, about which emotions animals have and which animals have different kinds of emotions, which animals grieve, which animals experience joy or excitement or surprise, or even such complicated emotions as guilt and shame. And finally, I I have recently began working on the topic of animal culture, of how animals develop, sustain, and pass down certain collective behaviors, rituals, practices, conventions that meet the anthropological definition of culture. And so these are all all areas that I think are going to teach us new things about the animal mind. And as you said earlier, might change the way in which we see not only animals and nature, but our relationship to both of them. It's a large topic to end off on. (laughs) I have to say that you did a very great job of simplifying their very complicated ideas to make them accessible for people. So I do hope that a lot of people are able to learn about these big questions for the first time and, you know, get that feeling of, you know, there's so much more that could be unknown in our tiny world in in the larger sense of things. So thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for chatting with me. I appreciate it.